Part three, chapter two of The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part three, chapter two. Clodagh's manner was careless and her gait nonchalant as she rose from the table and crossed the terrace, followed by her dog. But inwardly she burned with a newly kindled sense of anticipation. There was no particular reason why the idea of a journey to Venice for the purpose of seeing a stockbroker, even though that stockbroker was a personal friend of Milbank's, should be instinct with any promise. Yet the idea excited her. With the exception of the journey to England with Nance, it was the first time in four years that her husband had seriously contemplated any move not ostensibly connected with his hobby. And the thought of Venice, the suggestion of encountering anyone whose interests lay outside antiquities, had power to elate her. As she left the breakfast-table, her steps unconsciously quickened, and Mick, attentively sensitive to her altered gait, wagged his short tail, gave one sharp incisive bark of question, and looked up at her with ears inquisitively pricked. She paused and looked down at him. "'Mick, darling,' she whispered, "'imagine Venice at night, the music and the water and the romance, and just think—' Her voice dropped still lower. Just think what it would be to meet someone, anyone at all, who might happen to notice that one's clothes were new and that one's hair was properly done up. She bent down in a sudden impulse of excitement and kissed his upraised head. Then, with a quick laugh at her own impetuosity, she turned and ran down the first flight of time-worn marble steps. That was her private and personal reception of the news. Later, returning with her arms full of the roses that ran riot in the garden, she was able to meet Milbank with a demeanour of dignified calm, and to answer his questions as to whether her boxes could be packed in two days, in a voice that was dutifully submissive and unmoved. But the two days of preparation were imbued with a secret joy. There was a new and unending delight in selecting the most beautiful of the dresses in her elaborate wardrobe, and in the feeling that, at last, they were to be seen by eyes that would understand their value. For Milbank while never restraining her craving for costly clothes, had, since the day of their marriage, been totally unobservant and indifferent as to whether she wore silk or homespun, and on the occasions when outside opinions might have been brought to bear upon the matter, namely the moments when the archaeological excursions were undertaken, necessities of season or expediency had invariably limited her supply of garments to the clothes that would not show the dust or the clothes that would keep out the rain. But now the prospect was different. It was still the season in Venice. She would be justified in bringing the best and most attractive clothes she possessed. The thought was exhilarating. Life became a thing of bustle and interest. Two and three times a day she drove into Florence to make totally unnecessary purchases. She wrote more than one long letter to Nance, and indulged in many a protracted and confidential talk with Mick as they sat together on the edge of the old marble fountain that dripped and dozed in the sun. By a hundred actions, obvious or obscure, she made it plain in those days of preparation that, despite the fact that her childhood lay behind her, and that she had known none of the intermediate pleasures of ordinary girlhood, she was a being whose heart, whose capacity for enjoyment, whose comprehension of life, was extraordinarily, even dangerously, young. At last the day dawned upon which they left the villa on the sunny hill, said good-bye to the wide slow river, the riotous roses, and the slow tolling bells of Florence, and took train for the north. Through the hours of that railway journey, 
Clodagh sat almost silent. To her eager mind, already springing forward towards the enchanted city, there was no need for speech, and the quiet, prim husband seated opposite to her made no call upon her imagination. He was essential to the journey, as the paddy cushion behind her head or the English books and magazines by her side were essential to it, and for this reason he occupied that most fatal of all positions, the position of an accepted, familiar accessory. The early days of their marriage, when in her eyes he had taken in a new and dreaded aspect, were entirely past. With his supersensitiveness and constitutional self-distrust, he had withdrawn somewhat hastily from the position of lover, to shelter behind the cloak of his former guardianship, and Clodagh had hailed the change of attitude with obvious relief. Now, as she sat eagerly alert to gain her first glimpse of Venice, she had almost forgotten that those early days had ever existed. For the moment, Milbank was a cipher, and she an ardent appreciative individual undergoing a new sensation. Such was her precise mental position when at last the scene for which she waited broke upon her view. Rising straight out of the water, Venice seemed to her ardent eyes even more the product of a visionary world than her dreams had made it. The hour was seven, and from the many spires and domes of the city warm gleams of bronze or gold shot forth at the touch of the setting sun. But the prevailing note of colour that gleamed through the mauve twilight was white, the wonderful, semi-transparent white of ancient marble backgrounded by sea and sky. The effect made upon Clodagh's mind by this white city, wrapped in its evening veil, was instantaneous and deep. With the exception of Florence, her knowledge of the beauties of Italy was very limited, and her first glimpse of Florence had been gained under such unpropitious circumstances that its sheltered loveliness had never appealed to her as it might otherwise have done. Now, however, her condition of mind was tranquil, if not happy, and as the train sped forward she gazed spellbound at the beauty at once so tangible and so unreal. To every traveller it must come with the sense of desecration that this most magical of cities is approached by nothing less prosaic than an ordinary railway terminus. And Clodagh gave a little involuntary gasp of disappointment as the train swerved suddenly, exchanging the glamour of the outer world for a noisy station that might have belonged to any town. And as she rose from her seat, arranged her hat, and collected her books, she wondered for one moment whether the vision just hidden from her view was in reality the handiwork of man, and not some mirage conjured up by her own imagination. So strong was the feeling that she remained silent as she descended from the train, and waited while Milbank saw to the collecting of the luggage. Then, still without speaking, she followed him down the flight of steps that led to the water. But there, as the station vanished from consideration, and the picturesque crowd of waiting gondolas met her gaze, her pleasure and excitement woke again, and with a quick gesture she laid her hand on her husband's arm. "'Oh, isn't it wonderful?' she said in a hushed voice. Milbank turned to her uncertainly. "'Yes, my dear,' he said absently. "'Yes, but—' he sniffed critically. "'But do you not detect a distinctly unhealthy odour?' Clodagh's hand dropped suddenly and expressively to her side, and she wheeled round with unnecessary haste towards the gondola into which the luggage was being piled. But even this jarring incident could not mar the first journey in the stately black boat. 
Every portion of the way was instinct with its own especial charm. From the wide dignity of the Grand Canal, with its ancient palaces, its mysterious stream of silent traffic, its occasional note of modern life, to the fascinating glimpses of narrower waterways where the women of the people with uncovered heads leaned out of their windows to exchange the day's gossip with a neighbour across the water. All was a delight, something engrossing and unique. Clodagh had no desire to speak as they glided forward, and when the hotel steps were reached, she suffered herself to be assisted from the gondola, scarcely certain whether she was dreaming or awake. Outside the hotel, Half a dozen visitors were seated upon the small stone terrace, indolently watching the arrival of new guests. But so absorbed was Clodagh in the scene before her that she scarcely observed their presence. And when Milbank, murmuring an excuse, departed to see after their rooms, she turned again towards the canal that she had just left, and leaning over the balustrade of the terrace, paused for a moment to study the picture afresh. But as she stood there, unconscious of everything but the wonderful, noiseless pageant passing ceaselessly through the purple twilight, more than one glance strayed in her own direction. And two at least among the hotel visitors changed their lounging attitudes for the purpose of observing her more closely. The two, both men, were simultaneously and noticeably attracted. The elder, who by his extreme fastidiousness and studied appearance might almost have belonged to another and earlier era than her own, was a man of nearly seventy. The younger was his junior by forty-five years. But, so levelling a thing is spontaneous admiration, the expression upon the two faces as they leant suddenly forward was strikingly similar. The old man held a gold-rimmed eyeglass close to his eye. The younger meditatively removed his cigarette from his mouth. But at this critical moment of their close observation, Milbank reappeared, and moving stiffly across the terrace, touched Clodagh's arm. "'My dear,' he said, "'our rooms are ready. If you will go upstairs, I will find Barnard. I will not dress for dinner to-night. It is after seven o'clock.' Clodagh turned, her face glowing with the enthusiasm that filled her mind. "'All right,' she said, "'but I think I'll just change for something cool. It won't take ten minutes.' Without waiting for his assent, she turned quickly and walked across the terrace to the vestibule of the hotel. As she passed the two men in the lounge chairs, the elder again lifted his eyeglass, while the younger, leaning forward, stared at her with that superb lack of embarrassment or reserve that the young Englishman can at times assume. "'By Jove!' he said very softly, as the two new arrivals disappeared into the hotel. His companion turned to him with a thin laugh that belied his carefully-preserved appearance. "'Tractive, eh?' he said. The other replaced his cigarette in his mouth. "'What nationality is she?' he asked, after a moment's pause. "'I'd feel inclined to say Italian myself, but the old father's so uncompromisingly Saxon.' Again the older man laughed, a laugh that expressed unfathomable worldly wisdom. "'Father,' he said satirically, Fathers don't shuffle round their women-folk like that. They're husband and wife. Husband and wife? The other smiled. But the older man pursed up his lips. You'll find I'm right, he said. She walked three steps ahead of him to avoid seeing him, and she did it unconsciously. Proof conclusive. The young man laughed. Doesn't carry conviction, uncle, he said. I'll bet you a fiver you're wrong. You take me on.
his companion smiled languidly. "'As you like,' he responded. The young man nodded. Then he looked down lazily at his flannel suit. "'I suppose it's time to change,' he said reluctantly. "'Awful bore being conventional abroad.' With another careless nod, he lounged off in the direction of the hall. Exactly a quarter of an hour later, Clodagh emerged from her bedroom, looking fresh and cool, in a dress of rose-coloured gauze, that, cut high in the neck and possessing sleeves that reached the wrist, was yet light and diaphanous in effect. She opened her door, and, mindful of the lateness of the hour, moved quickly out into the corridor. But scarcely had she taken a step in the direction of the stairs than a door exactly opposite to her own was opened with equal haste, and the young Englishman of the terrace appeared before her. Seeing her, he halted involuntarily, and for a second their eyes met. The glance was momentary. There was not a word spoken, but irresistibly the colour rushed into Clodagh's face. It took her but an instant to regain her composure and to pass down the empty corridor with a touch of hauteur. But long after she had gained the stairs, her heart was beating with a new excitement. The glance that the stranger had given her had been almost ill-bred in its absolute directness. But ill or well-bred, there had been no mistaking the unqualified admiration it conveyed. The personality of the man had escaped her attention. The fact that his hair was dark, his face attractive, and his figure tall, slight and graceful, had made no impression upon her. All she was conscious of, all that set her pulses throbbing, was a suddenly awakened knowledge that, within herself, she possessed some subtle and previously unrealised power that could compel a man's regard. She descended the stairs with a new sensation of elasticity and elation, and at its foot found Milbank awaiting her in conversation with a suave elderly man. As she came within speaking distance, the two turned towards her. Uh, "'My dear,' Milbank said quickly, "'allow me to introduce Mr. David Barnard. David, this is my... my wife.' Clodagh looked up curiously, and met the florid face, bland smile, and observant eyes of Barnard, a man who for nearly a quarter of a century had managed to prosper in his profession, and at the same time to retain a prominent place in fashionable society. As their glances met, she held out her hand. "'How do you do?' she said. "'I believe I've been wanting to know you ever since I heard you laugh one day two years ago.' She spoke warmly, impulsively, almost as Dennis Ashton might have spoken. Involuntarily, Milbank glanced at her with a species of surprise. In that moment she was neither the frank, fearless child he had first known, nor the self-contained, unfathomable girl who had since become his daily companion. In the crowded, cosmopolitan atmosphere of the hotel, she seemed suddenly to display a new individuality. Barnard took her outstretched hand and bowed over it impressively. "'Very charming of you to say that, Mrs. Milbank,' he murmured. "'But I'm afraid James has told me that you come from Ireland.' Clodagh laughed. "'He'll also tell you that I lived quite forty miles from the Blarney Stone.' She looked up, her face brimming with animation. Then suddenly and involuntarily she coloured. The young Englishman of the terrace was coming slowly down the stairs. He descended nonchalantly, and as he reached the hall he deliberately paused in front of the little group. "'Hello, Barney,' he said easily. "'Been playing much bridge this afternoon?' Barnard looked round with his tactfully affable smile. 
"'Haven't had one rubber,' he said. "'No? No.' There was a pause, a seemingly unnecessary and pointless pause, in which Barnard looked suavely at the newcomer, the newcomer looked at Cloder, and Cloder looked fixedly out across the hall. Then at last the older man seemed to realise that something was expected of him. With a gay gesture, he metaphorically swept the silence aside. "'Mrs. Bilbank,' he said affably, "'will you permit me to present my friend, Mr. Valentine Serracald?' End of Part 3 Chapter 2